Welcome back to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Marcus De Silva, and it is my absolute pleasure to be speaking with one Mr. Dale Hansen this afternoon. Dale Hansen is an accomplished sculptor who has led a life of adventure and enjoyed numerous accomplishments. He is a black belt martial artist, author, a pilot of fixed wing and glider airplanes, has flown aerobatics, and is a special forces underwater diver. He is a disabled veteran and a member of Mensa. During the Vietnam War, Dale was, high, was a highly decorated Green Beret who served three years as a commando in the famous MACV SOG program, whose mission involved extremely dangerous raids far behind enemy lines. This unit received more decorations and suffered higher rates of casualties than any American unit since the American Civil War. On one of those raids, Dale earned the first of several Purple Hearts as his right hand was mangled by a burst of machine gun fire. It is ironic that he became a sculptor, a field in which one's hands are so critical. Dale has authored four books, a book of poetry entitled Haiku, Flowers in the Grass, a collection of short stories called The Great Catch, a novel titled The Last White Seal Hunter, and a memoir, which is going to be the subject of our podcast today, Born Twice, Memoirs of a Special Forces SOG Warrior. So Dale, so we've spoken on the phone, except this time it's we're actually face-to-face -face, uh, via Zoom. It's a pleasure to see you today. Thank you. Good to see you. And I'm uh, as well for the uh, listeners uh, listeners and viewers, uh, I'm wearing, uh, speaking of the, the sculptures, uh, I'm fortunate enough to have quite a few, actually. I start, started the collection off right. Um, so if you go to the At The Mysteria podcast Instagram account, I have uh, pictures of a uh, grizzly bear, a couple ravens that he carved for me. And as well, I'm wearing a, a eagle pendant uh, that's just stunning. So I had to wear it for, for the thank podcast you. today, of course. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And uh, for those uh, as well who are thinking, you know, Mac V. Sog sounds kind of familiar. Um, you'll remember uh, that we have several episodes with Roger Lockshear up, uploaded, uh, as well as with uh, one John Stryker Meyer, also known as Tilt. And so it's, uh, I kind of got into it more or less accidentally when I heard John on Jocko's podcast. And I just thought, man, I got to get this guy on my podcast. And so it turned out well. And since then, uh, just bit of a blossoming uh, mm -hmm. relationships, which is, uh, of mm -hmm. course, wonderful. And so it's just an absolute pleasure to have you today. And for those watching as well, there's the book, Born Twice. If you want to learn, you have to read. I mean, there's just there's mm -hmm. just sort of no way around it. Um, and I, I like to think that I'm pretty good at keeping diversity. Um, within the the content and the subjects that I read and the authors, et cetera. And with the exception, I guess, of not as much fiction as I suppose there should be. Um, but I've been getting into that more and more lately. And so it's interesting then that uh, we were introduced at, at the time that we were because your, your book has a very unique feel to it. Um, it. It reads like a piece of fiction. And so it's, it's no surprise that with your experience as a writer already, um, through your collect in particular with the short stories and, and the novel it, it really it comes through and and the way that it's written and there's so many of these beautiful little details um that makes your book stand out um kind of in its own category yes it's a memoir but it it has just a very unique feel to it 
Um, and, and before we actually hop into the, the content of the book, I'm just curious as well as the, the circumstances under which the, the book was written and uh, j just your overall approach to writing Born Twice. Right. Um, I, I think at the time I started to write it, I really didn't have any, um, uh, any idea that I would be writing a special forces book. It, it was all pent up inside and so forth. But there was a, um, an imperative that got a lot of us starting to write books on SOG. And uh, two events happened in the last, say, 20, 25 years, and I'll mention to you, and they're certainly going to be controversial to your audience and so forth. The first was the American POWs. And uh, we assume that uh, civilized nations always get our people back, and uh, uh, they don't. And um, uh, I, when I was in school, uh, uh, probably sixth grade or something, a man came through our town. His name was John Noble, and he was a, a, an American contractor, German, but he had dual citizenship, and he was uh, brought into the concentration camps by the Nazis simply because of his American connection. And he wound up being a POW uh, in concentration camps, even though he wasn't a, a soldier. And he spent a great deal of the war. And he knew, uh, with his phenomenal memory, uh, the names, addresses, and personal information of over 5,000 American POWs that were sent to the Gulag. And he said, when the, the German, or when the Russians took over Germany and, and so forth, the trains turned around and, and basically stole everything they could. But rather than releasing prisoners, they just made them Russian prisoners. And so many, many thousands of American POWs wound up in the gulag in Russia doing slave labor and so forth. John Noble was, was not a, a military man. And somehow he slipped out an address to, a, uh, I think he was a Swedish diplomat. And that uh, with his name and information made it all the way to President Eisenhower, who intervened and got him out of the gulag and he uh, could give the documentation of 5,000 Americans who are still there and have never been released. And the same thing happened in Korea and some other places as well. Well, in Vietnam, and I'm, I know I'm spreading away from the topic a little bit, but in Vietnam, uh, the uh, amazing technology that we had is we knew where everybody was. We knew who was captured, where they were, if they were in the bamboo cage, if they were in Hanoi, uh, in Laos, where, wherever they would be. And anyway, when Operation Homecoming was there, Kissinger, uh, the Secretary of State, uh, was there and he had a list of every POW and we knew it, that they had. And so as people's names were, were, were released, he would check them off the list. And anyway, about 600 and uh, several of them got released that we were unaware of. But anyway, at the end of it all, there was about 600 names, most of them special forces or pilots that uh, we absolutely were positive that they had. And um, uh, Kissinger just looked at it to his aide and he took the, the slip of paper and he folded it and put it inside his suit uh, pocket and said, those are acceptable casualties for peace. And he left them. The second event that happened related to special forces at SOG. And that was, um, and by the way, that first one involved 60 uh, pages of lineal file cabinets that were located in Hawaii with firsthand photographs, information, eyewitnesses, uh, memorabilia, and so on. And those two generals and admirals shredded them. Uh, 
that second event involved SOG. And uh, about 20 years ago, a similar thing happened where they shredded all documentation that we existed. So all the things that you're hearing about in these SOG stories and in the books, our people are saying we did exist and we did these things. And the only way that our history can be, be maintained is that if we write the books and, and uh, after I wrote the first book, uh, um, uh, it was actually haiku, but at the beginning I had word pictures. And, and so many of the SOG people say, Dale, you gotta write the book, write the book, write the book. And I didn't for two more books. And then finally, as I saw good and great and heroic people dying one after the other old age, uh, effects of war and so forth, I said, I'm gonna write the book. And I did it as a biography slash memoir. And my, my slant was a little different than most of them that you, you've read so far. And so that's, that's basically the motivation for writing the book in the first place. People are just saying, our, our story has been erased. We need to put it down again. And that's why it's been great too to hear that uh, tilt uh, John Strakermeyer his podcast, which I'm an mm -hmm. listener of, and I'm now caught up on uh, on all of his episodes to date. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's just incredible. And and what's so interesting is so in in his most recent episode, at least as we're recording today, um, you and I with uh, Tim Schaff, and mm -hmm. it was so interesting because Roger and I covered that mission in our podcast. And then with Tim and John, they were discussing because Tim was Tim was there. He was involved in that mission. So yeah. it was his perspective yeah. on the ground. And so it's it's been great. And as uh, more I mean, and John's written several books. And so and yourself and Roger and more and more and, and starting to read those and, and connect the dots. And, and what's so interesting is that not only are you piecing together what happened, but when you see the interplay between the people who were there and who still are telling their stories. It's, it's really incredible. It creates this, this beautiful web of stories. Yeah. Anyway, I, when I go to the reunions every year, um, I see these people and we're getting older, we're dying off. People are in wheelchairs, they're in um, uh, the, the oxygen tubes and all that kind of a thing. And, and uh, each year when we say goodbye, um, uh, used to be see you next year and shake hands. Now we hug and we don't necessarily say, see you next year. And you, you see these people that pass out the door and books can be written about each of them. The, the, the heroism, uh, the, the missions uh, uh, that America has done um, uh, are incredible, you know, incredible. And they need to be preserved. You know, um, anyway. Indeed. And that's why it's great. And, and I was so thankful with Roger the last time. Um, well, every time, but uh, yeah. I, I made a point the last time uh, to say that it, it really is such an honor on, on my part, considering that I sort of stumbled into, mm -hmm. I didn't even know what Mac VSOG was uh, up until mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. And so for me to kind of be entering this um, world uh, new and from a different perspective, um, and just sort of to let my imagination kind of take over mm -hmm. and, and bring people on to discuss these these real acts that occurred. You know, this isn't mm -hmm. just, this isn't fiction. This is and some of these and well, some the majority of the, of the stories are so hard to believe. Um, you know, the, the, the truth is mm -hmm. often stranger than fiction. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. um, right. But yeah, certainly. And so I think with that, I think it's a good time to actually jump into some of the the content of the book and what what was so interesting and kind of the, the approach that I took to reading your book 
when I have a, a podcast guest on who has a book, I read it very differently than I would if we weren't going to do a podcast. So mm -hmm. if we weren't going to do it, I would just sort of, you know, no guidelines. I just sort of read it and enjoy it and not really have mm -hmm. that um, host mind going, um, which is good and bad, of course. But uh, what was so interesting to read this one, obviously, when I have a certain hat on um, with a certain perspective, um, it sort of allows me to um, pick these little moments or stories and and kind of get more behind what was going on and the insights and and allows me to be a little bit more curious than I otherwise would. Um, cause obviously when you have the opportunity to have the author on, then I can pepper you with questions and it works out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so chapter one, and it, it's, it's a very, um, kind of the, the way I would describe it is you, you really just hit the reader in the mouth with a baseball bat. It's fantastic. The way that it opens, because it's, it's in the middle of this, of this mission, you're already wounded. Uh, it's a seven man team with a lot more NVA coming to find you guys and you're hunkered down and in the jungle and it's triple canopy and it's dark and you can't see and you're trying to hear and mm -hmm. it's so intense and intense and tense. It's just building mm -hmm. up the, the drama for, for what's a, well, and what's likely about to unfold, which is a, a mm -hmm. firefight and you can kind of feel that coming. Um, I guess we'll, we'll, and, and the way I should also say, so we, we've decided that we're going to do two podcasts. Hopefully we can get it done in two. I'm pretty sure we'll be able to get it done mm -hmm. in two, but the way that I broke it up is, is we're going to kind of cover more of the biographical aspect um, as far as the content of the book, but I still ask some questions and we'll, we'll still talk mm -hmm. about um, the, the missions um, a little bit more in passing, I suppose. And then part two will be more focused on the missions. Um, but the, the feeling, I suppose, um, because it, when you're reading it, you're right there. You pull the reader right there with you um, in the jungle. And it's just like you get like even now I, I got goosebumps because you can feel it. Um, you can feel the, the tension build. When like w did anything and we'll kind of get into the some of those experiences, but did anything prepare you for that type of intense fighting? Yeah, and I think I think perhaps that's the whole reason that they have, you have the first sixty pages in the book. I think I think virtually all the books that you read on the on the war and so forth start at the war. I got drafted. I went over there, and you know, and and uh, I, I I I see the berets and the uniforms going overseas, but I, and I, and I, it doesn't. This isn't to diminish the other books because I enjoy them totally. But my perspective is I wanted to put a person in that uniform. Uh, there's a lady that was uh, doing the laundry. Uh, 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 and uh, as she washed the laundry in the camp, uh, she would take our uniforms and throw it over the concentrina wire so it would dry in the sun. And I look at those uniforms, you know, and it'll, it, let's just say Hanson. It says Hanson and it'll have staff sergeant, my airborne wings and my jump wings and my SOG patch on the pocket. And um, there it is on the concertina wire drying in the sun with not, nobody inside. And a lot of times we write the war stories and so forth. And you forget there's a, a human being in there who has character and ideals and so forth. What made somebody uh, um, enlist and volunteer to the most dangerous uh, missions that America's perhaps ever had, certainly in this war and perhaps even up into Korea and, and the rest. 
And so I wanted to, to say in the book, be at the beginning, what constituted my character that made me who I was, that made me want to volunteer with the, the, the very strong likelihood that I wouldn't come home. You know, and that's the purpose of the biography part. Yeah, and as far as you know, actually getting into some of the um, biographical info, uh, chapter two, I guess, starts from the beginning. It starts with your birth and where you're born, the the city that you grew up in, or the town that you grew up in, and then moving. Um, you have a funny little uh, quote right away, actually, about your father. I guess one of the first things that you said when you were born is, "I can't wait to take him hunting." <laughs> right. So that kind of right. set the stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. later on. Um, and also uh, quite a substantial military history in, in, within your family. Right. Yeah. My dad uh, was one of seven brothers. And on the other side, they had uh, um, a lot of, I think it was four brothers on my mom's side. But uh, four of them went to World War II. And, and then two of them went to Korea. And then the other one was married and, and I couldn't get to, to Vietnam. But um, my dad enlisted. Um, uh, right before Pearl Harbor, uh, he must have sensed that the war was coming and so forth, and, and joined and, and um, spent the entire war. He was in Iwo Jima and Guadalcanal and Tinian and, and another place or two. And um, uh, he, he was unique in that uh, he was colorblind, couldn't tell blue and, and green. And rather than that being a detraction and keeping him from the military, it made him an asset because he could see through camouflage putting green and, and, and you know uh, foliage shape things didn't didn't stop him he could just see through it all and he could see shapes lines and and so forth and so not only was he on the front lines but he was not only was on the the, the leading patrols but he was called a, a first scout which put him sometimes miles ahead of the front lines and he could find all the enemy positions and so forth and it was a crack shot as mm -hmm. well and um and of course, he, he was kind of a mentor. He's very quiet, very, very tall, dark, handsome Norwegian, you know, a very sharp guy. Um, uh, but a mentor, you know, he wouldn't talk particularly about the war, except I'd say, what about this? And show me how to march or whatever, you know. And, uh, and, and then all the uncles were that way, too. They were all wounded and so forth. And, and, uh, and that background was there. And you know, your country's at war. Uh, there's an issue that uh, requires that you go do your thing. You do your thing. You know, it's, you, you don't try to get out of it in any regard. So, And I think that's a sentiment as well that uh, I don't, it just doesn't seem to be, um, well, at least I don't know. I mean, my, my opinion of, of young people and uh, me being one of them um, mm -hmm. and largely why I do the podcast as well at least one of the reasons why i do it is because i just feel that um people really don't seem or, or the general attitude don't seem very um keen on responsibility um it really seems that if you can kind of get out of anything you just do it because i don't know like there's no real excuse other than i just don't want to do that and and but you lose that because you gain something from responsibility of course you do sure yeah yeah not nowadays it's it's not what, what was it john kennedy not, that's not what you do for your country you, you know without reversing that mm -hmm. but anyway now it's precisely the opposite what can i get you know what are my rights 
and and people don't know the definition of a right. You know, you have a right to something that a privilege that you have that's intrinsically given to you, but it doesn't diminish or take from anyone else. And so if, if uh, you think you have a right to a certain thing, and I, I am a, a person who has to pay for that right in some fashion, um, uh, you, that's not right. You know, and so often we uh, we, we talk about rights uh, and it's, um, there's this word, um, oh, slipped my mind, but anyway, there's a couple words <clears throat> um, that, that were really great when they were first used. And then when people start putting an adverb or an adjective in front of them, they destroyed the word. Uh, unique is the word I was trying to think of, and it just slipped my mind. The word unique means one of a kind. Mm -hmm. And so people would say one of the uh, very unique. Well, there's no such thing as very unique. Unique is unique. And you can't diminish or, or quantify that word. And we've taken things like rights and, and so forth, and we so diminish them that they no longer mean what, what they're designed to be. You know, rights, for instance. Um, yeah. And as far as, and what was also interesting uh, about your, I mean, the very first couple years of your life, you have memories from being like a toddler. Yeah, um, and people say you, you, you really can't remember that far back, but I do. I remember a babysitter and I, I certainly wasn't walking yet. Uh, um, and I, I remember that one so, so clearly. And, and the things I mentioned, and, uh, I, I seem to remember one toy in particular that I had, and, and it was a, this, this tractor and reaching for it under the house, you know, and so it was out of the rain and a snake was on it. And of course, Northern Minnesota is the garter snakes, but um, uh, the shock that went through my system and, uh, um, and, and of course, every morning when I would go back out there, I would flail the area watching for snakes. You know, it's a, uh, you know, I said, what did you even put that in the book for? It's really not that important. Well, uh, it, it makes you, you, you realize that someplace down in the, in the future, when you're older and you're in the military and so forth, you, you might want to prove the area before you step out in some fashion. So a lot of these tiny little details factor into the, the whole of the character. It actually makes you successful in, in being a soldier. And I should mention as well, like there's, I've highlighted some quotes here. I mean, you can see my, my tabs on the, on the book. Um, but whatever we do end up covering um, as far as excerpts from the book, it's an absolute fraction of what is contained. And, mm -hmm. and just, as you said, that story about the, the snake and that that's in the book as well. And there's just so many of these um, I guess it's kind of interesting. I heard this from, uh, yeah, I, I heard this term from a comedian talking about throwaway bits where mm -hmm. there, there are these jokes within their set that are not throwaway to be diminishing, but just they're, they're just these little appetizers that you just kind mm -hmm. of throw out there and throw away. Um, right. and that's kind of the word that I kept, uh, or phrase that I kept thinking of on that. There's just so many of these little stories and these details that, that add to, this progression um, throughout your life. Um, but there was one um, uh, really quick one uh, about a dream or a nightmare, I guess. Um, and just to read the quick little passage because I had a question about it. Um, I had a nightmare one night. I was standing on the bridge in the picture. Oh yeah, pardon me. And th this is talking about um, in your grandmother's house, there was a, a painting from uh, her mm -hmm. homeland of Sweden. And it's quite a, 
um, intense um, nature portrait. Mm -hmm. um, so it's this kind of this hard hitting um, picture. So I had, a, I had a nightmare one night. I was standing on the bridge in the picture and the wind was cold and bitter against my face and I was shivering. For a time, I did not dare look down at the boiling water that slammed against the hard black rocks, but I could plainly hear them. I was on the railing. This was not a thing of suicide for the point was not death, but life to me and my very limited understanding. It was acting on that which I believed. Everything was up to me. Slowly, I looked down and I woke up. And so again, like you're reading and, and you just, it just sort of shoves that little story in there. Then it just sort of mm -hmm. keeps going. But um, it jumped out to me um, just because of how vivid it is. But um, was that a, a recurring dream or nightmare that you had? No, it was something that took the place in particular over um, about a week time. But uh, it, it was, um, I, I must have been pretty smart when I was young. I don't know what happened. But um, uh, I was only about five years old and, the, and the, I was in church and um, sitting on the, on the aisle and the preacher came up and he was an old fashioned preacher. And, and I remember him as he came in the room and he had the Bible in hand and he walked to the pulpit from where he sat in his chair and he had the Bible open with both hands open. And it was like he looked at the book all the way to the pulpit and for a long time, never even looked up. He just looked at that book as if uh, it was the words he was saying was just coming out of the book, you know. And and he was giving it a message. And I remember toward the end, the, the kind of an anecdotal application of what he was saying about salvation. A man is a sinner. Uh, um, uh, he, he can't save himself. Uh, Jesus did it all for him. And, and you stand on the bridge of decision. And you dive off in faith and you die to yourself and come up a new creature. That's what he was saying metaphorically. And, and as when you're five years old, you take adults literally. And so when he was, as a young child, even five, I, I, I wanted to be a Christian. And that's kind of a cornerstone of, of who I am as, as in my character. And so I, I took him literally. And throughout that week, I kept thinking, you know, they're going to do that for me when I walk the aisle and I say, I want to be a Christian. I'm going to be taken someplace to a bridge and, and I'm, I'm going to have to dive off or they'll throw me off and I'll die, but I'll come up alive. It wasn't suicide. It was the opposite. And so I, I, one of those things was I remembered that painting in my, my grandma's house and she kept it up in the, in the living room because she was so homesick for Sweden and it was all black and white. And it's kind of like your dreams aren't colorful like daisies and flowers and pansies. You know, it's, it's black and white and cold and so forth. And that's the imagery of that story. And, and the thing is, is, it's a decision. It's a life or death decision. Will you make a decision? And, and uh, it's it's a matrix for the rest of your life. And not that, not that the Christianity necessarily has that much of an impact, but the decision-making process is. Because I would use the same kind of uh, decision-making to go to Vietnam, where I was almost certain to be killed on this one uh, uh, special forces uh, unit. And um, when I see the necessity and I'm convinced, I'm ready to go to that step to, uh, to fight communism and, and so forth. And that's the importance of that uh, uh, that little dream, sort of. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, you know, it's funny too, when I do these podcasts as well, it's always interesting being on, because obviously I'm 
I'm the host, so I got to direct this thing. Uh, but it's also nice being um, kind of putting a, more of a listener's perspective on. It's nice to just sort of take it in. So um, if I need a, sometimes I might just need a little bit of a pause. So even for the listener too, it's like, why isn't he sure. saying It's like, yeah, just kind of trying to take it in um, just because it's also nice to um, appreciate where where we are in the story and whatnot. I'm just kind of trying to move forward that and digest it. Um, very interesting. Um, so there, there's a story as well, and it's in the next chapter, it's about 10 pages after this uh, dream that we just discussed. Um, you get a gift from uh, Uncle Lawrence, uh, made mm -hmm. me laugh because um, the story's quite uh, a bit of tongue in cheek in there is quite, quite funny. Um, but he gives you a, a blank notebook as a gift. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a little bit of humor in there as well. Um, as far as you're kind of looking for like something more to the gift, uh, but you know, it's just this yeah. plain notebook and it's just a little quick, um, this is a little quick, a uh, couple sentences I just like to read. Um, so your uncle gives you the book and you're looking at it and, uh, going to the book here, uncle Lawrence saw my uncertainty. Dale, you are very smart. You can do artwork in it. You can write a book. And he added, as he looked into my eyes, the pages are empty, but you can fill it with your wise thoughts. And you're discussing the book. And, and so you look at it and suddenly my uh, big chief book took on great value. Its cost was what Uncle Lawrence paid in the store. Its value would be what I put into it. And I highlighted that. So actually, I'll hold up for the, the reader as well. Um, if you go to the Instagram account as well, um, you're going to be noticing there's a lot more like excerpts from different books um, that are going to be posted. But there's a method to my highlighting uh, because then I go into my note taking as well. So the color codes mean something. Um, and I highlighted that in red um, in particular for the, the last sentence, which is its value would be what I would put into it. And that motif rings true throughout the entire process and even all the way up to when you're in in country and you guys are doing endless hours of training missions and and not even pardon me not even training missions training for the missions just little things about how quickly can you load a magazine how quickly can you change that magazine like and all these little things and and i kept hearing in my head like its value is what you put into it and, mm -hmm. and exactly and maybe just describe that in a little more detail for us. Yeah, and actually, as you're, you're speaking, uh, the anecdote, uh, if you were to think of that um, uh, il illustration that, that you just mentioned with the big chief notebook, if, if that was the book cover, the other side of the book cover would be at the very last chapter when the lady uh, in, the, in the old folks' home uh, is angry about life, and she, she says, you take that, your, that cup of water and you put your finger in, in the water, and he says, your finger is you and your life. He says, the water is, is, is your life and, and your society. He says, you pull out your finger and nobody even knows you were there. That's the other book cover in a sense. Because my, uh, and, uh, my uncle uh, Lawrence, who had been wounded twice and was on recovering at, at that point, um, basically gave me the, the, the first half of the book cover. It's like, it's like I don't know if he even realized the compliments he was giving. And it's the kind of a thing that each of us as growing up people should think about is that our life is, is a book. You know, you're writing into that book. Uh, whether you know it or not, you're doing a biography of some sort. It's recorded somewhere, whether God's recording it or society records it, or maybe on your deathbed, you remember, he said, you know, I didn't do a thing. I didn't put a single thing in that book. 
And so that that uh, it's interesting because all these things, uh, every single detail, I always research for the factuality. And and I, I thought I, I was going to describe the little chief notebook, or big chief notebook. And uh, um, I looked at, uh, I think it was someplace in the computer, um, uh, eBay or somewhere. And I typed in big chief notebook and there it was. <laughs> and that not only was it big chief, there was little chief too. And just as I remembered it and so forth. But the compliment that he get, gave is is so immense that that I had the capability to put something in it. You know, I wasn't going to use color cranes and scribble on the thing. I was actually going to put something meaningful into that. And little did he realize he was probably giving me a book of life of sorts. You know, and I'm glad you noticed that. <laughs> and you're about, you're, and you're quite young here. I, I, my notes a little bit mixed up, but you're about about eight years old or so. Yeah, about eight, yeah. 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 So, and what was really interesting as well, and kind of throughout the first six chapters when you're still uh, prepubescent, um, your family as well really uh, trying to kind of describe it, but like they they really took to um, who you were as an individual. Like they, they all seem very. Um, they wanted to support you and, and like the whole family, like it actually, you had a very, from the sounds of it, a very supportive and um, very interesting uh, family. Right. Right. Um, you, you know, like I said, my, my dad, there were, there were uh, seven brothers and one sister and, uh, um, and of course, large families and stuff. But as I mentioned in the book, my dad's side of the family and my mom's side of the family as well, nobody ever went past the eighth grade. Um, the law said you had to go to eight to eighth grade, and after that you were on your own and you could go to work and so forth. So my family, uh, um, and there were brains in the family, there were very smart people in the family, uh, but they um, they went straight to the work, uh, uh, working working in logging and so forth. That none of them were professional and so forth, but but somehow I, I think when they sensed that there was. Uh, potential or let's call it potential in the, in the family stuff. Uh, I, I think they were really, really supportive of it. Here's somebody who's going to go beyond the eighth grade. And here's somebody who's probably going to accomplish something in life uh, um, that they couldn't, you know? Um, and uh, I think I mentioned in the book, uh, and, and then to uh, one of these things is that um, <clears throat> you don't realize the compliments until you're older. Uh, um, you know, being at my age and looking back on things that people were being very complimentary and supportive when I didn't realize it at the time. And um, uh, what Uncle Lawrence was doing was uh, wonderful. And I put that in the book, in the matrix of other events, in particular, the lady with the, with the bunkum belt, I'll call it, yeah. and, and put them to side by side. And, and being eight years old, as you mentioned, uh, deciding I am going to accomplish something in life. Um, uh, I'm going to put something that's worthwhile in the book. And, um, and of course, God, God would have the books and, and so forth too. But, and then there are people you, you, um, you, you're interface with throughout the rest of your life and you're going to have an impact back on them for good or bad. And some of them, you won't even realize it. And, uh, uh they'll call you at a later on time and, and, uh, um, say, you know, that little comment you made, you know, changed my life, you know, and that's, that's wonderful. And then later on in, in the same chapter, uh, like just actually just about four, four pages after 
um, there's uh, like you're exposed to tragedy pretty early on. And, and there's yeah. uh, several instances here that you discussed two indirect and then one dir that direct more directly affected you. Um, I had a question about the, I guess maybe, well, yeah, maybe we'll just start with actually what actually happened, but um, I think it will come better uh, from you than it would for me, but there's a, uh, a train or a car accident involving a train or a train accident involving a car. I'm not sure best way to put it. Mm -hmm. um, and then a, a missing boy named Robert and then uh, the, the passing of your aunt. Um, so may, yeah, maybe just describe mm -hmm. those few instances. Yeah. And then the other event on the, uh, uh, that is, um, um, the the capstones of two is like like the the comments of Hitler and Stalin that the death of one person is a, is a, a tragedy or whatever or a murder, but the death of a million is a statistic. Uh, and and if, if since I'm building on the, on the character that puts on a uniform to go to war and fight and perhaps take life and be involved in in millions of people dying, it's important at least that aspect in your character. Yet to have it resolved, and what is your attitude about uh, life and death? And uh, um, yeah, that the first one was, uh, I, I, as I as I mentioned mentioned it in the book, you know, um, TV was in its infancy, you know, and we had mainly snow, uh, and I don't know what it was, and it, to this day I don't know what it was, but the train, which wasn't diesel, was the old fashioned locomotive, but it went to go chug, chug, and, and get, roll up to steam every time it would go chug. The TV went into deep snow, and then in between it would recoup and so forth. And so you could hear the train go by, and we would put uh, nails on the railroad tracks to make arrowheads and things like that. So we were familiar with the railroad tracks that went by our house. Well, one day it goes chug, 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 and it goes just a full speed, and all of a sudden it goes shh, and it just lands for a long amount of time. And then uh, moments later, outside of our window, lights are flashing in the red and in in the blue lights and all that you hear sirens and we run outside run down to the railroad tracks and a railroad train has smashed into a car that tried to beat it and um uh by then uh, the, the railroad is blocked cars are lined up along the way and teenagers that were just a few years older than us um, we're running down there and uh, I, I remember when they we were coming back it was a carload of teenagers Everybody was killed by the train. And these by these people were coming back and they're excited and laughing. And the one girl who just lived on the street, she's laughing. Did you see their heads? And 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 then they, the windows are rolled down and they're laughing as they drive by. And I thought, how could anyone take death so uh, uh, lightly? I guess it would be a good word. But um, and and then mere weeks later the missing boy named Robert and across our field was a, a farmer's field that he never grew a crop. He just plowed it all the time. And this, this missing boy named Robert. And um, I remember so clearly it was how cold it was. And uh, all the men in the, in the town would line up shoulder to shoulder from one side of the field. And I was too young to be a one of them, but I watched him in the, in the winter, all the flashlights going by the house uh, uh, in the dark, and uh, I can hear to this day the tramping of their feet on the snow crusts, and and the flashlights going back and forth and back and forth, and every once in a while people saying Robert, Robert, you know, and then they found him uh, the next day. He, he, he had 
fallen into a, a septic tank and drowned. The most horrible tragedy. And, and then putting the two side by side. And then later in the week, my dad getting a call that my aunt died and how he just collapsed uh, in, in uh, uh, just weary, weary um, uh, you know, um, he just, he, he couldn't express himself. He couldn't, didn't have the strength anymore to stand. And uh, um, I'm putting these deaths together. And then of course, reading the book um, uh, about the, uh, the, tw the Second World War, I forgot the author now. And uh, he had this wonderful way of writing that a lot of people forget. And that he would say in this one particular battle, 20,000 soldiers were killed in this battle that occurred. Unless you lose death in the statistics, then he'll finalize it with a paragraph and he'll say that day, Mrs. So-and-so and her daughter holding a, a Raggedy Ann doll were marched out of their burning house and marched under an, an apple tree and executed. And you never forget that those multitudes of people are made up of individuals. And so putting all those things together um, uh, gives me an attitude of life. Uh, going to war wasn't a joke. You know, it was a real thing, a thing of necessity. And when I did, I went with my eyes open and uh, um, necessity uh, put it on me that I had to go and you had to do what was necessary to, to end it. Yeah, and, and the, uh, the the author that you mentioned, uh, Martin Gilbert. Uh, yes. You have the name of the book. In, um, you have the name of his book in your book um, as well. And and that was the one thing that was, and that's what's been interesting as well for myself sitting in, in this chair doing these podcasts because I start to understand more and more, just as you said, the, the human element behind the, the man in the uniform. Um and as well as just the understanding in a bigger picture that the those who have died, um, civilian or otherwise, these were people with families, people who loved them. They loved other people. Like mm -hmm. you know, so really understanding that uh, they're really. And then what you can kind of start to wonder, and at least that's oftentimes where I start to go, is when you think about the almost randomness of it or if there is a randomness to it like well why like if i was born in that time and place that could have been me and mm -hmm. you can even think as well well maybe i would have been an enemy soldier as well because you, you wouldn't know anything different right and so it mm -hmm. sort of altering your perspective and thinking about yeah i mean i guess I, I guess that's empathy i guess trying to understand what what a situation is like in someone else's shoes and trying to understand values and ethics mm -hmm. from that perspective one of the things that you were discussing, um, which I highlighted, was that uh, no death ever left me with a callus on my heart, which is just a really, I've thought about that a lot, that one sentence, I've really <laughs> thought about that a lot, because it's not that it's difficult to understand, but I'm, I'm just curious, like, did you understand it in those terms at that time? Or did that come more from reflection later on? Uh, I, I think I understood it then. Uh, I did, and I, um, I I remember funerals of a family, and and how the family would be so broken up. And I remember in northern Minnesota where we would go, how you know, International Falls, Minnesota is the cold spot of the lower forty-eight United States, and um, the open grave, and uh, uh, it'd be just so bitter cold and so forth, and 
and uh, uh, the family would be shivering at the graveside and stuff, and the the casket would come out and stuff, and and um, it, it was almost like the winter and, and the blowing snow and in in the uh, the sliding of the, the the frozen snow across frozen uh, snow drifts. You know, it was almost emphasizing this is death. It's final. It's cold. It's awful. And um, remember, even one time that the ground was so frozen, they had to put the the casket in in a in a place that would stay frozen all winter till the ground was there. And and, and you remembered the tragedy and and, and the, the value of the soul. Of course, from, coming from a Christian perspective, you, you understand it too. And and, um, and, and, the, and of course, one of the great importance uh, of this is that if I'm going to go to be a soldier and take lives, which I have many times, uh, to take lives, uh, I, it wasn't done with a callus. You know, it, it was done out of a necessity. Um, uh, you know, I see some people with a sign in their yard. It says, war is not the answer. It's an abs 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 stupid comment you know it's, it's so blanket it really says nothing now uh, but sometimes it is and it, even from a biblical perspective wars are necessary and uh, uh sometimes you have to decide if you're going to be a a, a slave or or, a, a, a fight you know so interesting that you said that because when i read the part about the teenagers laughing at the, mm -hmm. the uh, accident uh, well, I mean, I thought it was very strange. That's a very odd reaction. Uh, but it was so funny that you mentioned about having a sign on your front lawn saying that because in my head, the first thing I thought was, I wonder if those kids were at university, if they would be the ones saying that, you know, communism's a-okay. I don't know how yeah. I made the connection, but yeah. you, you have such a disconnect between what what is really an objective truth like how could you possibly think that a situation like that is funny in any i mean it's nothing other than tragic that's it that's just the objective way to look at that um mm -hmm. and then to to have your perception so skewed um mm -hmm. so it's, yeah it's kind of interesting in, in my head i was just like man these kids don't know what's going yeah, on and, and those kids that were laughing and so forth, uh, they didn't even have time to have a callus they were just absolutely insensitive Right. You know, and, and um, in sometimes in some ways, being incentive is more forgivable than having a callus. Hmm. You know, I don't mean to be so metaphorical that we don't we lose it. But uh, some people uh, go to war and so forth. And, and the act of war winds up being a, a, a good deal. It's a great adventure. And, and certainly it gets your attention. But um, uh, boy, your, your idea on life and the sanctity of life and so forth. And I, th I think I gave that the metaphor in there too about army worms, and I don't know if you even want to mention them, but um, uh, we had that infestation when I was a young teenager, and um, uh, army worms were so thick they were like grapes hanging from the trees. That was everywhere, uh, thick. I mean, inches thick everywhere, and cars were going off the highway. The trains couldn't start, and so forth. And I remember this lady who was going around the corner and got into the army worms and her car slid into the uh, field and she was afraid to get out of her car. She would have been, she would have stayed there for weeks uh, because of the army worms. And then my uncle Raymond, who was in Korea, he was the Korean veteran and we were on the porch and, and uh, um, the one place, you know, we swept them free of the army worms. And he says, he said, he just made the observation. He said the, the color of the army worms, was the same as the North Korean and Chinese uniforms. 
And he says, and, and I, I, he said they kept coming and coming and coming and just piles. And I, I thought, just like the army worms. And I thought, uh, um, I, I would really hate to face an enemy that didn't value death. And Russia was that way. They would send their millions in to, to, to fight the Germans. They were losing 10 to one. And that's no problem because we got more tens than they got ones. And then you, you look at uh, um, uh, the Ukraine now, and they're willing to, to, to send 40, 50,000 people to gain a few yards where human life means nothing. Uh, um, so I thought it was an imperative in the book to, to spend those few pages saying, you know, in my character, this is, I put value on human life, especially if I'm going to take it, you know? Yeah. And I was actually, you, you, it was good that you mentioned it because I was just going to say that because I, I highlighted that part as well um, because the analogy um because even your uncle, like there's this little quote uh, after he's looking at the the bugs and, and just sort of having, and he's kind of having a bit of a moment as well. Like it's a, he's having a bit mm -hmm. of an introspective moment. Um, and he said that uh, regarding the enemy, uh, they would just keep coming and coming and the dead just piled up. I guess they thought they had more men to die than we had bullets. And, and I remember mm -hmm. two things. I remember, I believe it was, um, well, one of the stories with uh, one of the missions with John um, Tilt, when he was describing how the NVA were literally piling their dead mm -hmm. on top of each other and using them as cover to fight um, right. like the recon team in the jungle. And then I, I believe it was Pat Watkins. I can't quite remember, but uh, Marble Mountain uh, mm -hmm. went up there and there was a mission and uh, ended up taking out a few NVA soldiers or sappers and, and they had uh, headbands that said, we came here to die. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just like the, the value. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it really isn't, it's really simply put yeah. the value on the life was, well, we'll just keep, we, we have no problem. We will just keep throwing bodies at the situation and we don't, we really don't care whether they die or not. Right. You know, right. There's this uh, Sergeant, NVA, North Vietnamese Army sergeant that we captured. He was in the hospital in our, our place and we uh, uh, they were going to send him out. <clears throat> we were afraid our mercenaries were going to kill him. So I kind of was watching him and I got to talk to him. But anyway, he was shot in the leg and he was in pretty good pain. But anyway, uh, he, he actually opened up to me and he was talking. Probably wouldn't talk to an intel guy, but he was talking to a fellow soldier. And he said when they left Vietnam, North Vietnam, to go to South Vietnam to fight us, he said they had each man had a magazine of ammunition, a clip. And he said there was one rifle for three men. And the idea was that when they finally got to Vietnam, each man would have a rifle and three magazines. And the idea that two out of three would die before they even got to South Vietnam. Wow. And, uh, you know, but yet they were willing to come. So uh, you're, you're looking at a, it's interesting, there, there's a poem, and I, I, I know I'm not going to try to quote it, but it was a, a translation by, um, uh, it wasn't Netanyahu, it was, um, it starts with Anne, he's the German, a great, great poet, but he, it was called They Killed Someone. And I've seen English translations of it a couple of times, but um the one translation was great because the lady comes running into the village and said they killed someone, they killed someone. And and uh, 
uh, and they've run out and they're actually measuring the distance between the villages to see who's got the responsibility. But uh, they killed someone, they killed someone. And uh, uh, anyway, I, I, I thought it was so out of character for the Russia that I know and read about. And I read Dostoevsky and all the rest of them. But uh, people that, that hold human life under communism in particular with such little value but in his poem, he's talking about the common people and the villagers who have put such great life and value on life. Um, I, I, he was well done in that poem. Um, it wasn't Sharansky. It was started with him. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, well, and, and to that, it's always interesting as well, because obviously, you know, that to, to run a, a country, um, whether it be democracy or communism, any system that you want to use, um, that obviously comes from policymakers and people at the top. These are the mm -hmm. these are your leaders, uh, mm -hmm. and it's so it's always interesting in, in situations where the people deviate or you know follow suit um, to whatever is being indoctrinated within that society. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so that's an interesting interesting poem uh they killed some was that what it was called, called they killed someone and, and a poet i think it starts on n it's a very very famous one um he wrote bobby r does that ring a bell yeah no but i'm i'm making my notes <laughs> <laughs> okay um I, I'm, I'm getting bad on names lately um yeah. oh no problem there um so and then we we get into chapter five and uh, I quite like this actually. And so this is sort of when your love of reading starts to come through and, and sort of you discuss that in a bit more detail. Um, and the first book I actually, I, I didn't, Oh yeah, here it is. Um, so the first book that you wanted to purchase was Tom Sawyer and it cost 49 cents. <laughs> Gotta love yeah. that. Um, but yeah, you, you, you talk about uh, your imagination, uh, kind of taking hold and and you you're looking at the covers and and you put yourself in those situations with those characters and mm -hmm. um it actually reminded me of uh matilda which is one of my favorite uh books and and movies when i was young too still a great movie it holds up over time um but what one of the things that um i love this brilliant quote uh, i'm not going to quote directly but um it had to do with the fact that matilda would insert herself into these stories and when she was there she was never alone she always had someone that she mm -hmm. always had a friend um you know because matilda was a very interesting character in her own right and very very lonely girl um but powerful nonetheless so so it was interesting like the the power of imagination and how that started to affect you and and you had a really interesting quirk uh that i, I was very interesting so i just wanted to read it really quickly here um so kind of, again, just sort of kind of catching it in the middle of this thought that you're having um, regarding your love for books. But uh, this began a love for books, good literature. Sometimes I read by author, having found a great writer. On occasion, I would read all but their last book, which I would keep, which I kept unread on my bookshelf. The, the writer was kept alive, thereby on a walnut shelf. I found that very interesting um, because I've I've felt that sentiment too, where um, especially with music, 
uh, more so with music than with books, but um, like a, uh, a, especially when a band breaks up or, you know, some of them, I'm into older music. So now they're dying, um, you know, more yeah. so um, yeah. and retiring, but yeah, there's, there's a sad feeling when, and it's like, Oh, that was BB King's last performance or that was his last live album. And it kind of makes, mm -hmm. it makes you sad. And it's almost like there's a hesitation to not, want to listen to it because then it's over yes now you can listen exactly to it again but it's not the same right mm -hmm. um but yeah i'm just, and, just and wondering ancillary thing, that. yeah and ancillary thing right to that thing is um yeah I'll, i might find uh an author and read his book in some other venue somewhere and and it, I, i'm really impressed by it and i'll go buy it to put it on the shelf for the sole purpose of honoring him the, the fact that, you know, he, he did this thing, I want to buy his book, and at least he'll get the resources from my writing. And it's like the least I could do is to buy his book and put them on the shelves, you know. Yeah, that was a very interesting. I just, I really like that. Um, and then on the next page, um, actually, there's, there's just this one line um, from your mom, and she, I mean, very simply, um, so bottom of page 37 it says mom taught me how to work and then mm -hmm. in quotes find something to do never stand around you can always find a broom and mm -hmm. i just love the simplicity of that because it's it, and that you'll see as the character develops you know in the book mm -hmm. um, i kept hearing that in the back of my head too um especially then we are going to cover it so we'll uh, just kind of briefly mention it but then you're working three jobs um, and the work, work ethic was very impressive and we'll get to that. Cause I had some questions there, but, um, guess what I wanted to know with that, your parents basically by, um, your observations of them, um, even by page 37, it's already evident that they're very hardworking, honest people mm -hmm. in that regard. Um, and then your mom basically just coming out and straight up saying to you, you know, pick up a broom, be useful. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's always something you can do. And, and what I thought was interesting was that there's always something. It doesn't have to be a big thing, but pick up a broom. Because even just to sweep a floor, is, it's not a big chore. That's a small mm -hmm. improvement, but it's an improvement nonetheless. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess basically the, the question is, um, you know, how much did that, because again, I guess you're about 9, 10 at this point, a little bit older. Um, how much did that sink in to your psyche at that point? I, I think it did uh, because the whole family worked hard and, and uh, it was so praised when people worked. I remember my mom once talking about going to visit some some lady's house and she, and her comment when she left was you could eat off her floor, <laughs> you know, and, and it was so praised, you know, that the work ethic was there, you know, and, um, and, and of course it, it I, I noticed it, you know, and I, uh, and it, and it helped all the time too on um, getting uh, work and, and so forth and recommendations and so forth. A quick little tangent. Um, I had one more. There, there's a little um, quick story about Treasure Island and there's a little conversation with your, your dad. And I want to mm -hmm. come back to that in a second, but a little quick tangent related to just what you said. But so when I was in, um, when I was going to university in England, so I had my own place um well I had a roommate um so the two of us lived there but I was the I'm the guy who did the cleaning um mm -hmm. that's, that's my thing I'm good at it I like it um I'm very detail oriented so 
you know, very particular. Mm -hmm. um, and even when we were moving out, um, so the, the building that I lived in, it was a three level building and the flat that I was in basically was identical. So the, the three floors, it was the same exact flat just on floor one, two, three. And when it was time to move out, the letting agency were doing open houses essentially. And so they asked for permission, you know, can we bring people in and, and look at the apartment and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, it's no problem. So I mean, I made sure, especially on on the days that the the people were coming in, I mean, spotless, everything was spotless. And I had table runners and I had candle holders and I had, I mean, I, I like decorations and stuff, you know, I took care of the place. But what was interesting um, and what I've come to appreciate, I obviously appreciated it at the time because I did the work, but even more so now understanding um, the psychological effect that has because the external world that you live in and you can get as micro or macro as you want with that but mm -hmm. let's keep it at low level which would be you know the immediate surroundings that you live in your house you know your your, your housing um, that is an immediate reflection of what is occurring inside your your head and mm -hmm. and and your sure. heart as well too um, if if you're living in squalor uh, the chances are internally you have some things going on that you're not, you're not at a hundred percent. Or yeah. maybe that is where you're at. That is the level that you're at, in which case it, it requires some work. And, and so then when you think about that in relation to what your mom told you, um, it's almost that idea of like, never, there's always an improvement to be made to a situation, even if it is small. And, and just understanding that larger reflection of the work that you put out is a reflection of who you are internally. Um, I agree. That was very interesting. Um, you know, but anyway, enough of that tangent. So back, back to the story. <laughs> um, so you're reading treasure Island and uh, you're talking to your dad, having a little bit of a discussion. You're actually talking about a couple of books here, um, but the one in your hand is, is treasure Island. And uh, your father's sitting down and, and then he, you know, just kind of turns to you and, and says that, uh, I remember reading that book too. I, I really liked it. I was on the deck of a troop ship taking my turn in the fresh air and the seagulls kept dipping down on me thinking I had food. I remember thinking of the sand and the palm trees in Treasure Island. And then I thought of the sand, beach and palm trees that we had just left after the guns and fighting erased it all and how beautiful it must have been before the war. He turned to go, but stopped and said, I suppose the palm trees are all grown back by now. And the Islanders who lived through it all will have rebuilt their huts and have families. Some of them probably have sons your age. And so you end the chapter on that. And then you go um, into the next bit. But um, that really stood out to me. And I'm guessing if it stood out to me that it stood out to you. <laughs> it, it did. And, and just the idea that. It, it takes war and conflict from someplace else on the other side of the globe. It actually puts it in your living room where you could realize that there's a boy out there just like I am, mm. you know, and he's gone through things and, and it's a new life for somebody else, you know, and um, uh, I, I think that was the rationale behind it all. Plus, plus my father, who I, I love very, very much. And um, he was a great man, you know, and, and I, I only knew him as working and working and working and just, constantly working and I could never visualize him as actually having time to read. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and to that as well, just kind of what we were discussing earlier on that, that concept about your dream, um, destruction and rebirth. So it's interesting that, uh, you, you can go to war in a place where it's obviously devastated through artillery and bombing and, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, the fact that it, it, you know, nature does come back and people bounce back to, um, mm-hmm. and cultures. So that, that was interesting. Um, and then fast forwarding to it's about 30 pages after that or 20 pages after that, kind of in the middle of a chapter, there was just this one line that stood out to me. So you're talking about, so now you're working three jobs. So you're 13, mm-hmm. you're working in the mill, you're working in the grocery store, and you're also uh, working with your dad in the woods. And uh, that work, I'll get you to describe it. That is brutal work i loved it <laughs> it sounded great in a weird way right yeah it, it seems like the, the more arduous the work was you know when you take them all and put them together I, the more it challenged me actually i felt great for having done it all mm-hmm. you know and uh working with my dad was great too and and uh and uh and the place i had in the in the mill you know was actually hefting these logs i was very strong back then and I actually loved it. It's just see and you could smell the uh the the and the pine and and the the, the water out below and I didn't, I really liked it. You know. The foreman uh, he must have liked me, but he said he says, Dale, he says you like it too much. He says, I'm gonna do you a favor and fire you if you like it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> He's afraid I would stay, you know, crazy. Yeah. And the the work in question, at least with your father, um, basically just stripping bark off of trees by yeah. hand. I've never heard of anyone ever, ever having to do it. But, <laughs> but the customer on that thing was, uh, I think they made fence posts. And okay. and so uh, when they did the order and, and nobody t- took it, so my dad took it. And uh, um, uh, so, so basically it, it meant that every single eight foot length of a tree had to be peeled. All the bark had to come off it. And, and I thought, man, nobody is ever going to do that. Well, uh, we figured out how to do it. And number one was this, uh, you had to do it right away because you had that moisture between the bark and the, the, the core. And then he would score it with the chainsaw lengthwise. And I would have the, uh, um, a tool that we made and I would just peel it off. And it would look like the uh, a snake's shred, shed uh, skin. You know, and it wasn't that bad. It was just miserable conditions, very hot. Um, uh, you'd sweat like crazy, and you had the horse flies and the deer flies, and and uh, it, it, it was pretty miserable work. But um, it was also a pleasure to work with my dad and all that, and it was fun. Of course, that's when we heard of uh, uh, Lyndon B. Johnson's Vietnam speech was in that field. That's right. Yeah. And there, before moving on to that, because that was my next question, the the one line that, uh, again, I just quickly wanted to cover. So you're talking about like, you, you basically had to make your own tools in order to complete mm-hmm. the work. Um, and you go through it, and it's really interesting, that development. And then uh, the paragraph ends with, ultimately, the most effective tool for the task was a simple one. And mm-hmm. I just like that. It stood out to me. Um, trying to remember the whatever philosophical principle, but usually <laughs> the simplest explanation is the correct explanation, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it just it was interesting that through this, there's this real long process of you're developing these uh, these tools and you're trying to get them to work, and then it just comes down to this really simple, mm-hmm. and, and and that's what proved to be most effective. Um, mm-hmm. 
So I just like that. And then, yes. And then, as you said, so then you're, you're listening to a, you have a transistor radio. Um, and, and it was kind of interesting because you said, you know, sometimes you'd listen to a, a baseball game uh, on it when you went fishing. And then uh, in this instance, you turned it on and it was uh, the president's uh, speech on Vietnam. Uh, and, and it's quite an interesting speech um, mm -hmm. in, in itself. The, the, it's not reflective of the attitude of the American people, um, which I thought was interesting. And maybe you can just speak to that. Yeah, uh, in particular today. Yes. Uh, yeah. And back then, of course, we had a, it wasn't so much a divided country either because the, the communist fifth column is very, very active in the United States, fomenting the discontent and all that. But I think the people, once the president made the speech and said, well, you know, basically answered the question, why Vietnam? Why should we send the, the glory of our youth to this country where they could possibly die and so forth? Uh, uh, people who you don't know and so forth. And what's the eternal uh, benefit? Why should we do that? You know, and I thought the president, uh, for all of his faults and so forth. But I thought the president did a very, very good job in that speech, you know, and of course I was talking to my dad about it, you know, and maybe I should go now, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. And, and my dad was pretty level-headed on that too, because at the time you didn't know that it was going to go for years. Mm. You, you thought this would be a, a over quickly and I would quit school or not go to school and, and, and enlist and, and it would be over by the time I was ready, you know? So. Yeah. And your father offers good advice to that. And he, and what I liked about the, the first thing that he said was, uh, you know, listen to your conscience, but also mm -hmm. be smart, you know, again, because you don't know if this is going to be a, a long winded conflict or a quick one, in which case, if you don't go to university and it's quick and then you're sort of mm -hmm. stuck in, in no man's land there. Um, but yeah, so it was that that was a little interesting bit of um, wisdom that that your father gave you in regards to that. And then, um, quick story as well that I think is worth mentioning. Um, so later on in that same chapter, um, you, you're talking about uh, I guess it's shrapnel or bullets rather. Um, mm -hmm. So here's the story. Uh, so this is after you. Um, and so actually very quickly so the build up here so you're describing the, the situation as far as how the war is developing um at this time you're at bob jones university and so you, you're describing some of the experiences that you had in, in your education thus far um talking a little bit about the um spreading of communism and mm -hmm. and how that's playing out on the world stage um as well, there was just a really interesting little bit in there about uh, Thailand, about how uh, mm -hmm. Thailand actually aided in the American Civil War effort on the Union side, which I had no idea of. We, we had no idea we had a connection yeah. in, in Asia. Yeah. Very, yeah, so very interesting there. And then you, you make the decision that, okay, I'm going to enlist. Um, and if I'm going to enlist, uh, I'm going to go and be the best, which is I'm going to go and become a Green Beret. Um, and so actually, let me just ask you quickly about that. How did you even know what the Green Berets were at that time? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, I think it was about the time uh, Mark, uh, 
the ballad of the Green Beret came out. It's 1965, I think. And then uh, um, the, the other one was the uh, the book, uh, The Green Beret, which uh, it was interesting because I got to meet most of the people that were portrayed <laughs> in the book, you know, uh, and th those who came out. Um, but anyway, if I was going to go, it was going to be the best. I wasn't going to be a clerk typist or work in a, you know, I was going to be the, the very, very best possible. And and um, at that time, you know, the Special Forces, uh, you know, 100 men will just test today, only three win the Green Beret. And I thought, well, the odds are usually pretty um, difficult. But I had a good mind. Uh, they wanted you to speak two languages. Well, I had Spanish and I had Greek, Bible Greek, but I had Greek. And uh, I was in very good physical shape. I could, you know, I could do for 40 pull-ups and, and uh, um, in dips and curls and, you know, the whole deal. Uh, uh, and I thought, well, if there's 100 men in one room, I'm going to be the one that's standing, you know. And uh, I thought, well, I'm not going to quit for nothing. I'm going to do it specifically to, to go to the war because that's what I believed in. And uh, if they weren't going to send me, I'd write my congressman. And if uh, they weren't going to give me a ticket, I'd pay my own way because uh, I'm going to be uh, the guy who goes and fights for freedom. You know, I'm anti-communist and, and and that's where it is, you know. And then a bit of foreshadowing. So then going to the story, um, at the end of that semester, I closed my Greek lexicon and my book of Strong's Theology and placed them with the rest of my books on the shelf in the room where I grew up. Next to those books were the round knobs. Oh yeah, we should talk about that. Next to those books were the round knobs from the crumpled dash of my Cadillac and a small cardboard box that my uncle Herb had sent home just days before he was killed in the Battle of the Bulge. Inside that box were pieces of shrapnel and several bullets that he had picked up from the battlefield. Dozens of them were bullets with bullet holes through them. From a conflict so severe, the gunfire so intense, and the very air so thick with flying rounds that bullets collided in the air. I remembered as a young boy rolling those bullets in my fingers and considering such a battlefield whose very air was a downpour of death. If I survived the war, I would finish my studies, but for now I had a duty to perform. I quit college and enlisted in the army. And so, so then when you're thinking back to, so obviously when you wrote this book, you're more or less the age you are now, and then there's a story about when you're young and then when you're a child. And, mm -hmm. and so putting that all into sequence, when you were, when you decided, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to be a green beret. This is what I'm going to do. Did you remember that, you know, the, the, the bullets, like, was that something that was in, in your mind or did that come later on? Yeah, it, it was, it was vivid. It was, that showed the intensity of war. It was not Hollywood. And my dad would tell me about Iwo Jima and stuff and, and uh, um, how you'd have an immature second lieutenant who would order the people to do something stupid and then they would be shot up. And uh, he, he told me once he, uh, the guy next to him dove into a, a foxhole, an empty foxhole to get away from the fire and his hands went right through a dead Japanese soldier and in the intensity of, of the conflict and so forth. And... Um, and of course, myself being shot before, so I, I knew the uh, what war was like and what gunshots were like and what war wounds would do. And my uncle, um, who was wounded horribly in in the, the Battle of the Bolshoi, both of his his lungs were collapsed by the explosion, and they reinflated one. And and I remember when I was home, unconvalescently after being shot, 
he says, Dale, let me show you my back. And he showed me, it's like the massive, massive scarring. Um, so anyway, my eyes were totally open when I enlisted. Uh, um, and in particular, going through special forces training, as I learned about SOG, it was, my eyes were definitely open for that. You know, um, the probability of dying was immense. You know. And before going on to, to that portion of, of the book, um, I actually had it in my notes. So then we just, the flow of the conversation, I just completely forgot about it. And I'm like, oh yeah, there is the car crash and being shot. <laughs> oh, right, right. So um, I think it's worth, they are a pretty incredible story. So I think it, it is worth um, going back and just briefly discussing that. Um, so the, um, the, the gunshot uh, was first. The gunshot was first. Right. I think I was 13 years old. Um, uh, cold Minnesota, yeah, uh, bitterly cold, but still. Uh, but the kind of uh, thing where the, the snow would be like crystal, it was just ice cold. And my, my dad was coming from International Falls, going to drive to the farm 100 miles after he got off work. So it was my brother and I and my cousin, I was the oldest, and two of the uncles, and we were going to uh, do a drive for deer. And, and that what that means is you, know, you couldn't walk through the woods. It was so quiet. They would hear you. So they went to the other side, and we three young guys, and I was the oldest, 13, and uh, we were going to give them a half hour, and then we were going to walk across uh, the, the forested part into the, where the fields start and drive the deer out. They would get the deer that way. But anyway, it was really cold. And, and um, so I looked at my uncle's car after the uncles had left, and I thought, why don't we sit in the car? And, and the car was warm and stuff. So I had my 30-30 Winchester rifle. And um, I opened the the action, the lever, so it was obvious that it couldn't shoot and stuff. I slid that across the driver's seat, and I got on behind the wheel. And, oh, boy, there's a key in here. And my, my brother wasn't going to have any more of that. And so my cousin was sitting beside me, and um, he noticed that, that the lever was open on the right. He said, well, that's not supposed to be there. And he shut it, not realizing what that did is it left it loaded and cocked and ready to go. And so anyway, uh, I drove out of the field, the frozen, bouncy field, went over the railroad tracks. And as soon as I hit the highway, the bump made it go off. And it went through, I always say it went through my cheek, my uh, hip. My brother said, no, it was your butt. But uh, <laughs> it went through and came out at my tailbone. And um, it, my, my, my cousin took off on a run. He heard the shot and he knew what happened. He just bailed out of the car. But the, the shot, the shot, energy and the shock uh, stretched my leg straight out and I couldn't get it off the accelerator. And, it, and the car was just going faster and faster and faster, well, well over 100 miles an hour. And I, I had first started off with both legs, both hands trying to get my leg off the accelerator and it wouldn't. And, um, and then finally, uh, I had to steer this thing because nobody goes 100, 120 miles an hour without steering. And, um, and then finally, the shock wore off, and I could pull my leg off uh, uh, by grabbing the pant leg, and it got it off the accelerator. I, I rolled over to the corner of the, of the car, and I knew I was shot pretty good, uh, and I was bleeding horribly, you know. And um, my mom says when the hospital sent my pants home, hamburger fell out of the pant leg. So, uh, but the, I guess in retrospect you look back at the thing, it's like, in, in spite of the fact I know I was really badly hurt, 
um, I didn't panic and things like that. And when my uncle slid me over to the seat because they all ran into the car and they slid me to the passenger side and he went 120 miles, 12 miles to the nearest hospital in the country, you know, and uh, got to the hospital and he was going to carry me to the door from the sidewalk. And it was a d distance, you know, uh, because it was kind of like a, a lawn where people could visit and sit and all that. And I said, no, I got to walk. I got to walk. And he understood because he had been wounded in World War II and the other uncle had been wounded in World War II. So they both knew what bullets were like. And um, and she, he understood I had to know how bad I was. And so I, I walked all the way to the door and then I lost lost all my strength and it just collapsed and they caught me, you know. But it, 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 it did tell me that I could think under pressure and I could make decisions under pressure, didn't panic under pressure. And uh, it was the first of three times I've been shot, you know, so um, it was kind of the, the the prequel you know mm -hmm. you know vietnam being the sequel i guess you know but anyway it's and, and that and that easily could have gone horribly wrong um especially once your foot hit the accelerator then there's a whole new uh yeah. dangerous a new, new set of priorities now you gotta keep the car on the road doesn't matter how badly you're hurt uh you've got a new set of priorities which and that has war implications and leadership implications. Mm -hmm. And then the accident in the Cadillac. Cadillac that, that is one of the, the sad things in my life, because as a Christian, having Christian principles and so forth, you try to live the Christian life. But there was a time in there where I, I, uh, I wanted to know what it felt like to get drunk. <laughs> and so uh, I had a friend and, and uh, uh, we went out, we, I stuck my dad's car. And uh, he was sleeping for the midnight shift. And I, I, I bought a pint of 100-horse vodka. And uh, um, I, I, we were driving down a country road. And it ended at, at a guy's farm. And by the time we got to the end of that little road, it wasn't very long. And I, I couldn't even talk. I was just really hammered. I was a drive, you know. And so uh, he, we switched places. I went on the passenger side. And I started to puke and I rolled down the window and everything. I started to puke. And, and um, anyway, he drove me home and um, I got home and uh, I thought I got away with it because I got into the, my bedroom and slept. My dad woke me up in the morning. He says, come out in the driveway. I will show you something. He showed me the side of the car because it was wintertime and I, all the puke froze on the side of the car. And the evidence was plain. But that began a stretch of a couple months where I would party and stuff like that and and do things that were totally against my character. It's not who I was. And so I had a 53 Cadillac. I must have bought in a close interview a time that 58 Chrysler engine it went 120 with barely sneezing at the accelerator. And um, we decided on one Friday we'd skip school because we heard smelt we're in. That's those little fish, you know, smelter. And uh, but International Falls is about 180 miles from Duluth Superior, the closest place where smelt would, would come. So we we took my car, skipped school, we we drove all night, and one of my buddies took uh, several cases of, of beer, and we we went, went down there. We fished for smelt all night, and we had a huge water tub, uh, square, those square tubs you used to wash clothes in, and I had that in my trunk and some buckets and stuff, and and we fished. Um, well, we got there Friday night, late at night, fished all day Saturday, fished most of Sunday and filled the tubs and stuff. And then um, hadn't slept 
but uh, made a good dent in the beer. And then I started going home. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, I couldn't stay awake. I couldn't stay awake. And I told the one guy, I said, you want to drive? And, and so I went in the back seat on the passenger side. And he was driving. And I, little did I realize, I just had a feeling that things didn't feel right. It felt like we were going very fast. And I, I looked up, and we were sure he had the accelerator buried more than 120. And I looked, and he was dead asleep. I started to wake him up, and he left the highway 120 miles an hour, hit a steel embankment. Nobody was hurt in the car except I was ejected from the back seat. Went when hit the wind, uh, hit the, the dash, went through the windshield, hit the hood, and landed in a field. But the car was so wrecked, nobody would pick us up. 100 miles from home. And uh, when we finally got home, uh, uh, my, my dad could see it, it cuts all over. And um, anyway, they went and hauled the car in, hauled it in the ditch, uh, into the backyard where my dad left it so I could look at it every day. You know, don't drink, you know. And so um, finally, I just sat down on the couch. I was just looking at this car. And I said, you know, is this the life I really want to live? Is this who I am? And I said, I'll never make alcohol or anything similar to be the center of my entertainment or my life. I'll never touch a drop again. And I didn't. But I walked over to the car and I pulled the knobs off the Cadillac. There's a beautiful red, uh, round knobs. It's just artifacts, you know. And I pulled the knobs off the dash and I set them on my bookshelf next to my big chief notebook. You know, and that's where they, they stayed and, uh, as long as I remember. And that, that was a, a decision point in my life. It's, it's just like being who you really are supposed to be, you know, and um, that isn't who I was. And other people might, might do fine with it, but uh, it's not in keeping with, with my character. And so um, those little knobs, you know, were there to remind me the rest of my life. And the, the way that you tell the story in the book, uh, it's all in, granular details it's an incredible story even it's it's shocking um that no one was injured really i mean it mm -hmm. was just, it was a mess of a of a car wreck um mm -hmm. obviously going 120 miles an hour off an embankment is, is mm -hmm. yeah um yeah. but yeah definitely worth the read um for the listener and viewer and, and so now we're kind of getting um we're doing okay for time so actually i think we, we budgeted it out pretty pretty good here um, so getting to, uh, February 14th, uh, 1968, you officially, uh, pen your name, um, enlisting and begin basic training in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And there was a couple of things, one quick story that was just, I, I really liked it. Um, so kind of in sequence here and, and. As you as the training begins, uh, you make a point to say that you you studied the traits of of those who trained us. What I disliked and what I admired in the character of those sergeants, and sifted them for the traits that I would one day wish to see in myself. Um, and I think, and when I read that, I was like, oh right, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, because that's that's the learning process of um, that's where you observe what. A, you can call them a role model. Um, in psychology, you would just refer to them as a model, um, right? And, and so you you just examine the the character and the behaviors that these people exhibit, 
And the purpose of that is to identify what, what you like, what you don't like, and then mix that up and you put place it inside you. And then you try to determine how does that fit within my framework? And, and you use that to understand yourself and then you manifest that outwards. And so it's very interesting um, that you, and it's actually quite clear um, because when you read the book, obviously you get all the details. Um, mm -hmm. So it actually makes total sense that that is your frame of mind um, mm -hmm. as far as how to be, a, how to be a, not a good soldier, how to be a, the best soldier. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that comes through quite clearly. And then immediately after that, there's a story that just made me laugh. I just, it's, it's excellent. Uh, sometime around the fifth or sixth week, we earned the privilege of going to the canteen after the end of a training day. Two of us were leaving the company area and proceeding down the sidewalk toward it when a loud voice of command halted us. Halt! You two, halt! We stopped in our tracks and looked towards the voice. It was one of the sergeants. Who is in charge of this formation? I was bewildered. What formation? I thought. There were just two of us walking to the store. Who is in charge? The voice repeated. We're just walking to the canteen, Sergeant. There are two of you. That is a formation. Who is in charge? I don't know, I admitted. Someone is always in charge. Which one of you? Who has the most rank? We're both private, Sergeant. Then who has the date of rank? We looked at each other. We joined the same day. Then whose name is first in the alphabet? I thought... I'm Hanson. He is Baker. He is Sergeant. Then call your formation to order. Someone is always in charge in the army. Is that clear? I really like that because it's, it is funny. Um, but it's also spot on. <laughs> exactly. For the rest of your, your tour and overseas. And uh, you know, you, somebody should always be able to, to, to take, take charge when it's necessary. Yeah. And, and I, I, I was so, I was so amazed when when he did that, and I didn't know if he saw potential in us, and figured <laughs> that we would ultimately be sergeants because we both wound up as the honor graduates. And I thought he would perhaps, in retrospect, he was investing time in us, a, a good lesson, you know. And then certainly once you end up in SOG, then that takes on a whole other meaning because then. Yeah. Um, and that's an idea as well. Um, I've been really interested in more so specifically trying to understand self-leadership and actually just what leadership really means in general. Like what, what does that actually mean? Um, cause I think we, cause when, when you hear leadership, I think, and take the military out of the equation, just, just in general, when you think leadership, I think the knee jerk reaction is some guy tall, straight, um, kind of, you know, uptight barking orders. And I think that's that knee jerk, uh, reaction to that, but really what it comes down to is, is not that at all. Um, cause that's not really leadership. That's just barking, <laughs> you know, that's not, you know, but the idea of, of self-leadership is, is the idea of maintaining discipline, especially when nobody is around, when you are the only one that you can rely on. Um, and then understanding that people are watching what you do. Um, and, and what's interesting as well is with your religious background, that takes on a whole new meaning of understanding. And, and that's developed as well um, throughout the book till we get to that point. And of course it continues, but you, you see that 
interplay occur. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just, just understanding the significance of that and how that is not something that anybody is taught. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I came across that phrase self-leadership through my own study um, right. and recently, and I'm 26 mm -hmm. and that shouldn't be the case. <laughs> it right. be right. Early yeah. on, you know? Yeah. Even, even in the scriptures, you know, like a definition of, of, of a pastor's duties, and one of them it says neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flocks and other examples. Uh, you're leading by examples and so forth, rather than being the boss and, and yelling at them what to, what to do. That's not leadership. And you, you're spot on on what you're saying. Uh, uh, it's unique in the special forces because there are no privates in special forces. Everybody is a leader, every single one of them. And uh, that's what where Hollywood gets it totally wrong. You know, the, the old captain comes in there and he needs uh, some people. You know, I'm going to whip you into shape and I'm going to train you. So, um, no, that's not what, what SF is. And uh, uh, to be a leader in, in, a, in a group of leadership. And uh, uh, I was so privileged to be mentored by legends and so forth. And, and uh, you know, like uh, uh, Bob Howard is the most decorated man in American history, um, three times in for the Medal of Honor and all that stuff, you know. And he would he would talk to me in, in just such a gentle way. There was one time, just uh, as the, uh, for leadership and stuff. There, once we, our camp was under attack, and um, um, I don't think this is in the book at all. But uh, uh, I, I went to the, the perimeter where I could hear and tell where the bullets were coming from. And the, the artillery was coming in, in general, and uh, I. Um, uh, I wanted to find it and, and spot it so we could direct air track. So I jumped on top of the perimeter and was looking for that when they dropped the rounds down the, the tube so I could spot on. And there's this voice right alongside of me. He just went up so I wouldn't be embarrassed. And he says, Sergeant Hanson, get off that wall. <laughs> just so gently. You know, and that was Bob Howard, most decorated man in American history. And, uh, um, but gently, softly, and so on. And he didn't have to shout. And all of a sudden, I realized, you know, you idiot. <laughs> what are you doing up here? You know, and leadership, Norm Doney was my my mentor, my team leader in reconnaissance. And and um, uh, just a gentleman and, and quiet and um, uh, assured of their leadership. And um, I, 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 the topic you're talking about on in general right now, it's so important, imperative, and uh, leadership. Uh, projecting power, people think, is is leadership, and um, all you got to do is look at politics. And is it that there's no leaders there? You know, didn't mean to get you off track here. No, no, not at all. Um, and actually, I think I might as well just kind of pop it in uh, this discussion now. I think by the time this podcast airs, the podcast I'm going to mention may already be up, or it will shortly be posted after this one, um, but I figured it's a good spot for it. But because um, I'm doing a bunch of solo podcasts, um, just mm -hmm. discussing uh, largely from what I'm reading, um, because that's where I'm getting the information from. Um, but just on my own, um, I'm doing my own little projects and um, mm -hmm. things that are coming down, uh, things I'm training towards. Um, and so I'm going to be doing a whole podcast on uh, the idea of self-leadership and um the idea as well related to it, but that um, just as you said, this, that can change your life. Like th that mm -hmm. principle 
um, and intertwined in it is that discipline aspect. And, and it's not discipline like, you know, getting beat over the head with a stick. Sometimes yep. that's okay. And I mean, and my personality, I, I have to beat myself over the head with a stick to, to keep me in the fight um, and keep me on the path, but um, not over, not over the top. Um, you have to understand how to lead yourself. But uh, this, I, this concept that discipline can change your DNA Absolutely. Because it, it affects you in such a fundamental way. And the purpose of that is you get the best out of yourself and therefore, well, who's watching you if now all of a sudden you're getting the best out of yourself? Because I mean, there's always people who don't want you to be successful, but there's certainly people who care about you, look up to you, look after you. Um, and, and that relationship works both ways. And, and so you, you have a responsibility to, I mean, you're here once. I mean, this idea that you're privileged left to even be alive. Um, and, and it's it'd just be shameful to, to squander that opportunity and, and the right. satisfaction that you get from that and, and doing your best and how that has such a profound effect on the people around you um, to the point that you can be a leader who doesn't actually have to say anything other than, you know, Daniel right. Flat fence. <laughs> <laughs> right. Character, character is what you do when no one's looking, mm-hmm. you know, and, and being the self-starter and stuff. Um, in special forces, there are so many people that um, they're, they're virtually fatherly as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you see them in portrayed always as, the commandos and eating, you know, or raw meat or, or whatever it is, you know, and uh, um, most of them are, are, are were not that way. They were very, well, the, the characteristics in special force, one of the, the number one, number two is uh, professional. Mm. Uh, uh, and number two would be being able to make a decision under pressure. Those are the two things I think, to me, most characterize uh, special forces. And these gentlemen, who had been war after war after war and and done amazing things? Um, they, they could their leadership by example, and you just you 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 want to learn from you. They're they're mentors, you know. And you don't want to disappoint them. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. which is a, a bit of a different element to it. That that's when I'm kind of starting to understand a little bit more. So when um, you you think so highly of someone, whether it's a superior or a peer, um, Mm -hmm. just the idea of not, uh, like you just, you can't, the idea of letting them down is just, I can't, I can't do that Mm -hmm. because it would just hurt so much um, because you have that much respect and admiration for who they are and what Mm -hmm. they've done for you by their example. Um, So certainly there's that other element to it. Um, So we have six minutes left. Uh, for, for today we didn't so get very far we, we've we we did okay actually we you know we did pretty well um there's there's so much in here um that's why I, i'm really you know i'm really got to plead with the they're not plead but i re- strongly suggest to to the listener i mean you just have to get this book to to fully appreciate um what it is that that's being discussed here because um just the detail of it um, there's so many, like my note, I showed you the page of my notes before we started and I'm like, oh, okay, we're done. Okay. But you know, it's just, there's so much in here that, um, would be great to get into, but we're doing a good job. But, um, just for the last few minutes here, um, I just wanted to make a note as well. Um, what I really appreciate about the book is that it really, uh, you, sh- you shine a light on the training 
and the, the physical training, the psychology around the training. And I, I actually have a much greater understanding of what it means to be in special forces because as a civilian, um, that's the one thing that I struggle with mm-hmm. because you're just not in that environment. So how are you going to know if you know, you're mm-hmm. not there, um, but you really shine a light on it. And so it, especially because I've listened to, you know, all of John's bo- uh, podcasts, uh, vast majority of Jocko's podcasts. And there's always a portion where they lose me because I'm like, Oh, I don't really know what it is that they're talking about. And obviously, you know, they're joking around because they know exactly what's going on. Um, but yeah, you, you do an excellent job at just understanding that, um, you talk about force multipliers, um, you know, which is like a principle of, of special forces that you guys aren't soldiers, you're force multipliers. And so Mm -hmm. understanding what that means and then how that affects the training and, and the purpose of what you, set out to do um, as well as there's this brilliant um, brilliant section about how you get broken down your identity gets broken down from an individual into that of um, many and that's how you become a team and you move as one and not think as one though not group think. that doesn't that's not there's a just subtle distinction there but and that speaks to like the leadership of if everybody is a leader in their own right then you can challenge in a good way what's the best decision to move forward and we need to make a decision and so we do that and we understand where we're thinking and so we can all agree that okay this is the move and we need to just take action so mm-hmm. um really getting into the psychology of that. So I, I really found that it, it helped me understand um, not just the, the units as a concept or special forces as a concept, but as the individuals who make up those units um, mm-hmm. really took on a different meaning for me. So I really appreciated that. Um, none of which we're going to cover because we only got a few minutes left, <laughs> right. but it's in the book. Uh, the one thing that, and we'll, we'll, it, we'll segue nice into the the second part that we'll do uh fast forwarding um to to the training there's a school uh in in the special forces training it's called operations and intelligence um and the you're you're being basically just informed of what this means to join that school so if you are interested in applying for this school here is the criteria You must have an IQ of 130 or higher and make a full commitment to complete the training. Upon completion of operations and intelligence training, you will be immediately assigned to a certain highly secret project. You will agree to a tour of one year in this classified mission. This is a top secret project and suffers very high casualties. 85% of you will be dead in three months. And then as that sinks into the, the group of you, um, you offer your insight here. I figured it out. If 85% of us die in three months and tour is a year, what number do I have to start with to end up with me at the end of a tour? About 4,000. I'm not suicidal and the odds were daunting, but when you are young and you, th- you think that you are immortal, when Mike and I arrived at the building, there were 37 of us. All of us finished the training and went to SOG. Only a few of us came home. And so that, you mm-hmm. know, sets the stage for um, basically what's about to happen next, which is the, the fighting begins. Um, right. And so there's a, 
and I'll just mention it now because I know we won't have time even for the next episode um, to get through, but just to conclude, um, uh, talking about the pronunciation, uh, is it Novi? Novi, yeah. So, so yes, I think he's Czechoslovakian. Novi. Yes, sir. And so you, you have about three, two and a half pages um, from, he basically just talks about himself um, and, and describes mm-hmm. his story, which is, I read it several times because it, it was just, um, I read it the first time and I went, no, that can't be right. And then I went through and read it a second time and I went, no, that was right. And then the third time was, you know, just for good measure. But um, I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. Um, so maybe just uh, just your um, perception of him at the time. Novi, Novi was a, a guy who, he reminded me of my grandma in a sense, that tired look of, of Eastern Europe, because uh, my on that side it was German. And um, I, an old man, uh, everybody else is strack, you know, uh, starch uniform and uh, professional looking and everything. Novi came in looking like he, had been washed inside of his fatigues. You know. uh, certainly not the stereotype SF guy who comes to lecture. And he comes to the, to the podium and he just quietly says that my name is Sergeant Novi and that this is the, my third war, my third country. And he, he talks about when he they fought against the Nazis and, and uh, uh, all that kind of a thing. And then when the, uh, the Russians came came over on the other side, he fought against the, 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 the communists and the, all stuff. And he says he'd been shot several times and he'd been captured and stuff. And then you look at his hands and all his fingernails were gone and he had been tortured numerous times. And he said he, he can't remember how many times he swam across the Rhine River uh, and going into Eastern Europe and so forth. And he says twice he was shot on the other side, once in the river and so forth. And he talked about the missions and so forth and and communism and how bad it was. And how, and of course, the difference between socialism and communism and so forth. Most Americans nowadays didn't have a clue. Mm-hmm. And uh, Novi was one of those guys. And of course, later on in the book, uh, uh, Novi comes up again in Vietnam and uh, um, it uh, um, gets gets shot across the head, and of course they'll leave the the story to, to the people who want to get the book. And um, Novi was a, a fine fine man, and and kind of like the the quiet leadership. He was the guy who who led by being a mentor and calm in the situation and having experienced it all. And uh, Novi was just a, a guy that you loved. You know, and um, he lent me a book and I was on a dangerous bit. And I, I know your time is getting close. <clears throat> I, I was an extremely dangerous mission. And he gave me a, a, a book of poems. <clears throat> and I, I remember I couldn't sleep and stuff like that. And anyway, I was opening up his book of poems, war poems. And I, I, and, uh, I opened it up and it was a, an Italian author, a poet. It's an all night long thrown against a buddy slain with his gnashing teeth bared to the full moon. I was writing letters full of love. Never had I hugged life so dear. Mm-hmm. And I read that to Novi in the hospital <clears throat> after he got wounded uh, a month or two later. <clears throat> but that was Novi, you know, a good man, Eastern European who became an American and knew the dangers of fascism, communism, Nazism, 
and dedicated his life to fight against it. And, and the insight, and again, you did a great job at describing it and, and the insight when you can kind of fully appreciate again, earlier what we were talking about, you know, not being, um, not just a statistic um, that mm -hmm. you know, there, there's consequences, um, yeah. real life consequences for what people lose in, in war um, and, and the atrocities that occur often in the, the background of, of war. And, and he really puts a face to that um, in mm -hmm. describing it. And you, you have this really interesting, um, it's one sentence, but this, he, he finishes his uh, lecture essentially. And then um, your insight into him I thought of that sergeant in his broken body as a sack of treasure with his sorrow and sacrifice and wisdom and tears inside his rumpled uniform drawn up and cinched at the wrinkles of his neck. And I just thought that was, I just like the idea of his viewing him as a sack of treasure because yeah, the, the, mm -hmm. the insight and the uh, emotion that you get from, and, and the, the severity of, of what it is that, you're preparing to to do um mm -hmm. it's sort of all kind of wrapped up in a nice little bow or maybe not necessarily nice but it's in a bow mm -hmm. nonetheless mm -hmm. um but yeah and, and just understanding you know this is you know it's about to begin um and so i think that's actually we'll we'll pause there um and it's so funny because we we'd spoken i guess about a month ago when we were going to set the mm -hmm. podcast up and uh, I had, I was just about to receive your book in the mail, or I think I had actually just got it. And I read like two chapters or something at the time. And so I was like, well, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll go through the book and da, da, da. And then um, I guess a few days ago, I emailed you and went, okay, so I think this is going to have to be two parts because uh, mm -hmm. there's no way to get through it all. Um, and, and in all honesty, I mean, to, to do it, uh, to, to get through the, the book in the detail that it's written would literally require about eight podcasts because my questions are just endless. Mm -hmm. And that's not a bad thing. Um, that's just, I'm sometimes too curious for my own good. Um, but that's just, just as the listener, um, it's absolutely worth getting this book. And you also uh, recorded the audiobook. Yes, uh, um, it, it should be available on, and of course you can download ebook. Um, it should be on Amazon, um, Audible, and YouTube. Okay, my well, understanding. Yeah, I've yeah. seen it on Audible. I haven't seen it on the other two yet, but by the time this airs, it'll probably be there. Great. So, as yeah. a listener, yeah, you can you can purchase the book, um, or you can listen to it as well on those numerous platforms. Um, and I guess we'll, we'll, we'll start off with, you did mention it earlier, but, um, talking about the fifth column. And so I think that's where we'll pick up and then we'll, um, power through the, the rest of the book. But, um, in conclusion, just wanted to say, thank you so much. It's, it's wonderful to see you as well. I know we've yeah. spoken over the phone, but it's, it's really wonderful to actually be face to face with you. It's such a pleasure for me and reading your book is, it really is a great experience for me. And, and obviously to be able to um, talk, you know, discuss it in detail and go off on the tangents is, is just a great experience. So mm -hmm. just want to thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So until, and this will air, uh, we'll air both episodes together as well. So there's no delay. So there'll be a delay for us while we wait for the next time to record, but for the listener, head over to episode two.